Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Froke. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski, and we have a man who sells multi-million dollar deals, the one and only Dan Cutler. Nick, why should people listen? I used to think that solving the pain of the customer was the most important thing that I should be talking about in my discovery calls, and Dan set the record straight with me. We talked a little bit, a lot of bit, about the how an organization buys and how that facilitates really, really impactful discovery. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. If you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. Your Zoom Info actionable insight tactic is called Jane's Moving Up. Why? Because that's the email subject line you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there in the email, explain how Zoom Info helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by Zoom Info's go-to-market plays. Link in the show notes. All right, Dan, welcome to the show. We start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. Yeah, so my number one is uh, when focusing on doing larger transactions at big companies, you should be trying to find out how that company buys just as much as you're trying to fit your solution into the why, 
right? And so the bigger the company, the more federated the organization, the more stakeholders need to be addressed and covered and really focusing on how a company makes purchasing decisions will be key in your success. Beautiful. What's number two, Dan? So number two is really sort of simplifying your sales process and your qualification process by understanding why companies buy, right? So the how is number one, number two is the why. And it's always two reasons. It's to save money or make money. And indexing and trying to learn about which of those two are there will dramatically alter your sales cycle. And so upfront, you should be trying to find out the why. And, and if it's not saving money or making money, it's probably not valuable enough to make a purchasing decision. Beautiful. Round us out, Dan. What's number three? Cool. Pricing, quotes, that's your leverage as a salesperson. And you deserve leverage from your clients. Your leverage from your clients should be information in turn for providing resources in the form of technical assistance. But as a sales rep, the thing you provide and the thing you hold tightest is the price of your solution. And the moment you give that up and you haven't gotten the leverage that you deserve in return, you'll never get it back. So keep in mind that pricing is your biggest leverage as a seller. So let's talk about that one a little bit more. So I come into a meeting and I'm like, Dan, great. This sounds really good. Before we go any further, I have to know a sense of what this thing costs. How do you respond? Yeah. So I'd say, you know, if someone asks you for pricing as an initial sort of introduction to a relationship, unless you're selling a full commodity service, unless you're selling a wrench or a book, you probably don't have enough information in order to accurately quote that person. And whether or not that's actually the case or not, I encourage people to say, I don't know what you want to buy yet. My product or my solution is nuanced. I assume your requirements are nuanced. Let me make sure that I understand exactly what you're trying to accomplish to make sure I can actually solution and then price you effectively. Otherwise, we would likely be wasting each other's time. So I would normally just dig back into the requirements as a prerequisite and even to get pricing. And in many ways, that's a deferral, but that's okay, right? You do need to defer because you don't know if it's worth your time to give up pricing or the other requests that that customer may have. Dan, the other school of thought that I've heard related to that is that if you give a range on pricing and the customer's like, okay, you know, you tell them it's between 20 and $40 a head. And they're like, oh my gosh, I thought it was going to be $3 a head. We could never afford that. And it's like a legitimate thing. You're then like qualifying and you're not wasting your time any further on that. And so I guess, how do you reconcile wanting to actually qualify the opportunity with wanting to hold on to your leverage to get what you need as a salesperson? Yeah. I mean, look, I think in my opinion, no one has ever lost a valuable strategic sales pursuit in losing out on price as an initial communication with a potential client. Meaning if the conversation ends at that point, it was not going to be fruitful to begin with because this is not a serious buyer who has complex requirements that require a complex solution, right? And so there's lots of sellers out there. We all have quota. We all have sort of our near-term goals but if someone says, I'm not going to talk to you anymore because your widget costs too much and they're not giving you the time to actually learn about your widget and in turn sharing information about the problem they're trying to solve. If they close the door at that point, just imagine that it was never going to be open to begin with because it wasn't, in my opinion, right? Easier said than done. I've been in that situation many times to comment on your range if you are forced to say, hey, what's the price? The range is a valuable option that if you have to use it, because then in turn, you're forcing them 
to give you information to further qualify to see what requirements they have to fit. That's why people suggest the range. When do you know you are in a good place to give price in a sales cycle? You can ask yourself, what are the things that I need to know in order to feel like this is an actual worthwhile pursuit and that the customer has what I need to do a transaction? Typically in tech sales, there's usually about three things that that I look for. One would be technical validation, right? And that's probably the simplest one to focus on. Does my product meet your requirements? What are your requirements? Can we both look at each other and agree that your problem is a valuable one to solve and that my solution solves that? So technical validation is number one. The second would be budget. Is this a problem that has been funded by the business? Does it need to be funded by the business? Do you have the ability to get funding? How empowered are you, Mr. or Mrs. Customer? And the third would be, and this is typically when selling to a larger company, is that that first conversation is probably not going to come with someone that has a C in front of their title or even a VP in front of their title or maybe even a director, right? And so ensuring there's alignment from those people that ultimately own the larger budget or the larger strategy ensuring that they are in tune with the desire to potentially purchase a product to solve this problem is super valuable. So again, easier said than done to get all three of those things before you just give up pricing. But those are the things I'm looking for. And let's say you get one out of three and you give up pricing, that's a bigger hole than if you get two out of three. If you give it up under zero out of three, you're in big trouble, right? Because they could go shop something else to someone else and then give up more information and build a tighter relationship with one of your competitors. So those three is usually how I sort of dumb down the sales cycle for myself. So Dan, let's say that we found ourselves with a director level buyer, right? And so you have a director level buyer you're working with and you know that there's technical validation based on the problems they have, but you're not sure if this person even has the ability to get budget or frankly even knows how to buy software. How do I go about convincing that person not to shop me around laterally to every other director in the company, but rather to shoot me upwards? Because a lot of people get defensive when it comes to that stage of the game. Yeah, I'd say you know two responses there. The first is, if you haven't heard this before, hear it now. Don't accept a no from someone that can't say yes, right? And vice versa, right? Don't accept a yes from someone that can't say yes either. But secondarily, I'd say this is why we don't sell alone. This is why hierarchies exist. This is why we don't sell by committee and we don't sell one-to-one unless you know, you're a, a traveling salesperson with selling encyclopedias is align those people with similar titles, right? And so if you have a relationship with your champion who's a director and you don't want to step on their toes to get to a C-level, hopefully the company you work for has valuable resources in the form of executives who are knowledgeable that would be a valuable person to align to that VP or that C-level executive, right? And so this is why we say never sell alone, certainly not on a very large deal where those people will eventually need to be involved to get a transaction done. What's the right way to frame that up? Am I supposed to be saying, hey, we're never going to get this in your hands if I don't talk to other people? Because even the way that I voice that over, I feel like that's a little bit demeaning to say it that way. Yeah, I think it goes back to to my first sort of point is asking, how does your company make purchasing decisions, right? If your champion in this scenario, Nick, you know, who's frothing to get the solution is empowered, then they can make the transaction directly with you. A little bit less empowered would be mean they have the reputation and the ability to get to someone that can make a broader purchase, right? And if they don't have that ability, then you don't have the right champion, right? I think that 
champion development is an important part of doing transactions. This should be seen as an opportunity for that person to come up with a great solution to solve a valuable problem that the leadership of that company has not solved yet. And you should guide them and say like, I want to help you bring this internally and put your name on it as well, because you're identifying a problem that can probably, you know, solve many problems across the greater org, right? So it's challenging when that person hasn't played that role in their organization before. I think we need to provide a lot of empathy to the buying journey as well. We think that selling stuff is hard, buying stuff is hard, right? And helping those people understand even how to buy in their own company is, is really the art of selling and certainly more important as you go upstream into enterprise and larger organizations. So Dan, oftentimes with these director level or even a VP level person at a really large company, you're going to be doing more technical discussions. You're probably bringing in a sales engineer, what have you. Your discovery is probably less on the big picture vision type of stuff and more on the technical problem side of things. But then when you get up to the CIO who you're selling to, your discovery and demo process changes. So I'm I'm curious, once you get to that level, it's your first meeting with that CIO. What are you doing differently relative to the conversations that you're having below the line? I think going into the CIO's office and trying to have a really keen understanding of what matters to this person and what matters to the business will dictate your narrative in that meeting. And certainly having that person leave the room knowing that this solution and and this partner in the sales rep in this company can help our company meet our goals, which are either save or make money, right? And simplifying it will really help you sort of keen into your messaging. So I want to focus on like, how do you kick that meeting off? You walk into the office or you show up on the Zoom, like, what are you saying to Armand to have the conversation start so you can focus on those like important things and also demonstrate that you're not just some like schmuck of a sales rep who's going to waste Armand's time and he never will meet with again? Yeah, I'd say the advice there is you shouldn't be leading the conversation talking. I think it's been a while since I've had the microphone in a C-level meeting. The question I would usually ask is before we start talking at you, we'd love we'd love for you to provide your perspective on why you're really in the room with us today, what matters to you, what you want to see out of this session. And people love talking. They love talking about themselves. They love talking about their business. They love talking about their priorities. I think most of your listeners are are probably well-versed enough if they're in tune with, with trying to better themselves at sales that they know now the worst thing you can do when you get in a sales meeting is to start talking without further qualifying. That person could say something completely different than you expected, which can totally change the narrative of your meeting and what you're going to present. And if you don't take that opportunity to get more information and ultimately more leverage, you've done yourself a big disservice. All right. So let's keep this ball rolling on this front. So our favorite way to start the call is to just ask, why the heck did you take the call in the first place? They start going on and on and on. Could you give us a sense of like, what might be something that someone would say? And then what may be a question or two that could follow based on what they've told you is is important to them? I'd say, like, let's pretend we're selling collaboration or productivity software. And a CIO might say, I have two functions here. One function is to support the business and make sure that our people across every single business line is most efficient as possible. And my second function is where, if at all possible, to also create the best experience for our customers. So this person hypothetically could say, look, I'm trying to support a work from home model. I have a million old tools. 
A lot of them aren't scaling. A lot of them aren't working. And if they lead with that and you say like, is that the most important reason that you're here to talk to us today is that you want to improve the way that people are communicating and try to modernize the tools, whether or not it's documents or voice or audio or collaborative documents or the 900 other productivity tools that we all have or consolidating those productivity tools, right? That would be where you keen in. But I would always hold that second part close and try to find a revenue generating initiative as well. Is your company creating an app for a certain subset of your users that maybe my product could be introduced as a microservice that could modernize and run that app? Can you partner with us? If you're a bank or you're a healthcare company, you're probably good at, at being a bank or being a healthcare company. You're probably not great at creating apps or creating digital experiences from your customers. Can we partner there, right? I think that the best places to sell right now are solutions where you can kind of hit both, right? You can solve a how to get my day done problem for an employee, as well as, oh, wow, I could use this to improve the experience of my customers, my end customers, right? And I'll, I'll tell you for sure, a CIO wants to play that role, second role. They don't want to just be a portfolio manager, right? And so keying into their aspirations is also a good idea to be more than just a seller and more than just a, a widget seller. Awesome. And so let's say that I've identified some of these big initiatives that they're working on. I've gone through the discovery process. I've gotten many folks on board and I have my technical validation. I know there's budget and I know there's power. Now it comes to actually coming to the pricing table. And I know you have some tactics around maximizing deal size. So I'm curious if you could share what are the different ways that I can go about maximizing the ARR that I'm bringing in? Yeah, I think it goes back to leverage. How expensive is the problem you're trying to solve or what is the opportunity for maximizing that? Look, it's all about upfront qualification for how you close the deal, but but how much you maximize the size of your deal. If you're replacing something that is much more expensive than what you offer, you know, you don't need a discount, right? If you have that information, if you're selling a product that is going to enhance the solutions that customer offers their end customers, and you're going to make them $50 million and your product only costs $30 million, you probably don't need to discount that much, right? The strength of the business case is what dictates the pricing power that you have. And those are, are details that should be uncovered up front. And then we, again, like we have the hard challenge of trying to meet near-term goals and hold leverage and customers know how to buy and they're savvy, right? But again, I just have to, there's no quick bullet on how to get the most expensive price for your product. It's through really hard work, qualification, and leverage building that probably starts during the first conversation you have with that client. Dan, one of the things that I've heard is that I can justify a higher price, ARR, when I affect more functions in the business. And the more people that I talk to, the more stakeholders that I talk to at the business, the more ability I have to uncover ways to affect those functions. And so I imagine that your team is going and they're talking with multiple different stakeholders across different functions, but not every single person is at every single meeting. And so I have to assume you're learning things about the business, problems that exist that you solve that not everybody is aware of. And I'm curious to hear your approach and your team's approach to making sure that the CIO knows that you're going to be able to help the CFO with something really, really big to help justify that bigger deal cost. Yeah, I I think you bring up a really good point, Nick. Like, I was told something by a CIO once many years ago that that had a lasting impact on me and that 
I said, um, hey, Mr. CIO, you buy a lot of things. You must get sick of people like me coming and knocking on your door. Something I would never say at a later stage in my career, but he gave a great answer. He said, yeah, I do get sick of, of the salespeople that don't put in the effort and time to bring me value or knowledge. But you got to realize, like, I don't have that many people in my business that are compensated to investigate and solve complex problems in my business the way that the people trying to sell to me are. So some of the best ideas I've ever received, some of the best knowledge I've ever received is from salespeople because they're incented to do so. They're incented to investigate. And I think some of the best sellers I've ever seen have figured out a way to sort of get as wide and deep within a large company as possible and really tell a story about the different opportunities that could be solved with their product if deployed and sponsored by a central entity like a CIO, right? So I think that the more data you can provide and the more value you can provide, probably uh, the more leverage you would then have in justifying a higher price point because you're solving more problems, right? You're, you're solving a bigger, more expensive problem with the, the more BUs that are on board with the solution. One of the things that I was first taught as a salesperson is like, I got to dig into the pain. I got to dig into the pain. And that has led me to bias in my initial interactions with prospects around the technical qualification side of things. What's the problem that they have and can we indeed solve it? Because I feel like the more they talk about the problem and the more I talk about how we can help them solve that problem, the better chance I have of getting a deal done. But it sounds to me like in your initial interactions, you're saying, hey, let's set the problem aside for a second and instead talk about the stakeholders and how you guys actually buy something like this. Am I right? And so like, if I am, can you talk about really what that first interaction really looks like? Like, what are you saying? What are you trying to understand immediately? Yeah, I don't think the how should replace the why. It should be the how in addition to the why, right? So I think identifying pain is always going to be important, right? If you're selling a baseball mitt to a figure skater, then you probably haven't identified or qualified them accurately, right? So there's still that. But I, I just think that ultimately understanding the landscape and, and who else would need to be qualified and influenced in addition to that person to justify how big of a problem or the why is really what I'm, I'm just trying to instill is, is super valuable, especially when you're selling up market. What are the other things about enterprise sales that like reps just totally screw up or like where are the places where mid-market reps going into enterprise struggle a lot? That is honestly my question is like, where do you see the mid-market reps not able to hang when it comes to the bigger deal game? Yeah, I've seen deals be lost or I've seen deals be delayed because there was fear or there wasn't, in most cases, hard work put into becoming multi-threaded either yourself or by selling with other executives, right? If you get your hand slapped, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you're doing a bad job. It means you just decided that you were gonna take your own success into your own hands. Now, easier said than done when you're a manager and you haven't built that personal relationship with that person. You haven't gone out and had coffee or a beer with that person. And you, you know, I don't know their kids' names. You might know them. And that's when it just becomes important to not sell alone, right? This is when early in the cycle, there's these big executive meetings. It doesn't have to be your manager. It can be an executive sponsor, but you need to align those people so that when there's 15 days left in the fiscal year and your champion says, it's looking good, it's looking good. And you go tell your boss, it says, Pete told me it's looking good. They're gonna freak out because they're gonna say, 
does this need to go to the board? What's the deal flow and the signing flow? Does it need to go to the CFO first, right? Have they gone through their budget exercise? What is their signing process like? Who signs this, right? And unless you have the best champion in the world who knows how sales works and gives you all that information, you are still just relying on a middleman and you don't have the ability to go influence something. And I've seen many, many times everything was perfectly aligned, but someone went on a ski trip and the deal couldn't get signed. And it was because there was no access to that CFO. Your champion was scared to contact that person. And about six months ago, you remember in the QBR when your head of product came in and those two people talked about their kids going to the same school or had a relationship at an executive level. And you never aligned those people to then ask for a favor to get that deal signed, right? And so get multi-threaded and you know break glass early, right? Because if you haven't, it's going to be really difficult for you to do hard things to close deals on your timeline, not the customers. Because at the end of the day, the customer can still sign on January 1. They'll still get the product. You'll probably still have to give them the price, right? That you offer them. Don't let that happen. So get multi-thread. So Dan, what's the best way to go about this exec to exec motion if I'm getting blocked at power? I think it needs to come. It's not going to be that successful if your exec is some email with a VP and they reach out and they've never met before, right? Like even as a sales leader, I look for examples and opportunities really early to build a relationship with someone a step level above or more empowered than the champion that has built a really tight relationship with the sales rep. And if your sales leaders aren't helping you do that, aren't selling with you so that they can play that that role, and either it's a good guy, many times it's the bad guy, right? Then they're not doing their job as a sales leader, right? So get your leadership involved And then certainly look at if your company doesn't have a a methodology around executive sponsorship, which on the large deals, people from every single aspect of your company, probably even in your circumstance, Nick, like I bet one of your legal counterparts would want to speak to the GC of your company to understand how they make decisions, right? Your GC should be on quota, right? He's as much as a selling person as an officer of the company, right? So I think getting the culture of your company aligned with with being multi-thread and creating executive alignments is step one. And then you got to work hard to create those relationships. Really hard in the COVID world, right? It'd be a lot easier if we could all break bread and do in-person QBRs and and stuff like that. But um, this is the world we work in and it's possible virtually. I think the world has shown that we we can figure out a way to live in a digital world. Dan, this has been a phenomenal one. I always know it's a good episode when I take four pages of notes. So we got to move to our final question. And our final question is this. We've talked about a lot of really good things that salespeople should be doing, but we need to flip that on its head. And the final question is, what's one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to stop doing and break because it hurts them more than it helps? I'm not sure everyone's going to agree with this comment because I'm admittedly a little bit of a, a pessimist. I'm working on becoming less of a pessimist and optimists are better right, than pessimists. So don't get me wrong here. But I think people trust too much. I think uh, people need to remind themselves that sometimes the buyer is the liar, right? And they have every reason in the world to lie to you. And you got to be aware and you have to really break through to get the leverage that you need to be successful. And so I'm sure every person on the podcast or listen to this thought about a situation where 
customer said, or you told your manager, hey, the customer told me this, right? And maybe they were just misinformed, but maybe they misled you. Certainly procurement's job is to do that. Maybe we do it a little bit as well. But if you fully trust everything you hear, you're probably getting misled. Beautiful. Dan, is there anything that you want to promote before we end the interview here? No, sales is the best job in the world. We're so lucky to be able to have binary results. I know being on quota is tough, but I can't imagine not being able to wake up every day and have a clear goal to hit or directly influence my income and uh, the well-being of my family. So kudos to all your listeners for carrying a bag. Beautiful. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with RocketReach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Today's show is brought to you by Exactly Forecasting, which is a flexible sales forecasting solution that uses AI and data to help you call an accurate sales forecast. Gartner says over half of sales leaders don't have high confidence in their forecast. One way we recommend to improve your forecast is to align as a team on explicit attributes that must be true in order to deem a deal forecastable. That way your forecast will get clearer and the team will know where to focus efforts. We put together a forecasting 101 guide with our friends at Exactly. Get it for free in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Dan Cutler include, number one, there are three criteria before you give pricing. Number one, do you have technical validation? Two, do you have budget? And then three, do you have power? Number two, whenever you're stuck below the line, do not be afraid to go exec to exec. Work that network early on. Get your execs to sell alongside you. Number three, before you jump into that room or before you start talking at a CIO or a CXO, you should probably just ask them why the heck we're in the room together. And then lastly, number four, you can get caught up in the clicks, you can get caught up in the technical processes, but if you are not aligned to an initiative or a compelling event that is about making money or saving money, then you're just hoping that your deal gets done. Alrighty, Nick, how could people help us out here? Let's talk about making money, Armand. Did you know, you might not have known Armand, but the esteemed listener knows that we have sponsors of this show. And when we bring sponsors on, what we refuse to do is just say some lame feature dump ad. And we refuse to only do ads with our sponsors. Armand and I have created very special, exclusive playbook episodes with all of our sponsors that you can only access at the link in the show notes. So our sponsors like when you go watch them, hint, hint, wink, wink. Check them out if you want more 30 Minutes to President's Club content, and we will see you next week on the show.
Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. If you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Today's show is brought to you by Exactly Forecasting, which is a flexible sales forecasting solution that uses AI and data to help you call an accurate sales forecast. Gartner says over half of sales leaders don't have high confidence in their forecast. One way we recommend to improve your forecast is to align as a team on explicit attributes that must be true in order to deem a deal forecastable. That way your forecast will get clearer and the team will know where to focus efforts. We put together a forecasting 101 guide with our friends at Exactly. Get it for free in the show notes.